Let's uh, let bow our heads in prayer as, uh, as we begin to unpack the Word of God. Heavenly Father, um, indeed, uh, this last song that we sang is our prayer, um, that we would see you and love you and know you, um, and that we would experience you working in our hearts through your Spirit. So we ask that your Spirit would come and open this, um, your Gospel, your Word, unto our lives, that we would... Uh, be your beloved and know what that means. We ask you this in Jesus' mighty name, our Lord. Amen. Um, so, so we come to uh, this interesting study of the first two of the 12 judges in the book of Judges today. And the first one is really an ideal. And the second one, we begin to see the descent into the chaos that becomes Israel in this period and as we begin to study up, how, study how God raises up Othniel and Ehud to deliver Israel, um, I thought that that the, the the first thing to do is sort of set our minds upon the, the 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 toxic environment that Israel had created for itself by its lack of faithfulness, and that made me think about um, about being commissioned for something. Right, because I mean, if you ever if you've ever been commissioned to do anything, I mean, if you're an employee and you and you have a boss and your boss sets your goals and your KPIs for the year, you know that you you're commissioned to do things. If you're a salesman, you're commissioned to make X number of sales. If you are a worker, you're commissioned to accomplish this, that, or the other project. If you're an artist, you may be commissioned for a painting or or a photograph or something to that effect. But we're all commissioned by different people for different things all the time. In the same way, Israel had been commissioned by God to conquer the promised land, to take the promised land. And if you, if you go back into, um, into the book of Deuteronomy in around, in around chapter 28, when, when Moses reestablishes and reaffirms the covenant with Israel, and you, and you, you read back through uh, the, sto the story of his successor of Joshua in about the middle of of the, the book of Joshua in chapter 13, what, what we see is that God had commissioned Israel to take the land. And so he, he raised up Moses, and Moses stayed, um, never made it into Israel, right? And we know why. If not, come study the book of Moses with BSF, and we'll tell you all about it. And then Joshua follows him and conquers all sorts of different peoples and places, starting with Jericho and then across the promised land for many, many years until he's an old man. And then in, in his commissioning, in Joshua, the, the anointed of God, in his commissioning of Israel, Israel is to go tribe by tribe, take the land that's been allotted to them, and finish the conquest, and push out the peoples, and conquer the people. Some were to be put to death and wiped out because God was judging them, and some were just going to be pushed out. This is the judgment of God through his people Israel. And that is the environment of faith that God wanted to exist as they relied on him that they would finish this commission that God had given them to conquer. And the book of Judges is about the toxic environment that they create by failing to act and live faithfully. So the whole environment of Israel at this time, um, as we, we, we began with Marcus unpacking the first chapter and Philippi the second one, I want you to think the whole atmosphere of Israel is completely toxic. It's toxic because it's faithless, and it's faithless because they had been clearly given a commission, and they refused, and they failed to, to, to grasp that commission and to live for that commission. And so, and so as we begin to look at this, this, this passage, and we remember that 
the whole book of Judges is these repeated cycles of faithlessness and faith, the faithlessness of Israel, the faithfulness of God, the faithlessness of Israel, the faithfulness of God. We got to remember that, that, that these cycles are what we're going to be see repeated in each of the stories of all of these judges. All right, so, so today, as we, as we come to the first of the two judges, the first one being the ideal, the commentators say that the first judge is the ideal judge. He has all the different elements of the pattern that we see around the seal, right? All of those different elements, we see them clearly and distinctly. And then um, from then on out, all the judges are a little bit different. Some of them have like profound problems in their lives. Um, the judge that one of the judges we'll study today has a profound problem in his life. Some of them by their own doings, some of them by other people's doings, but such is life. And so today we're going to look at the, the pattern of sinfulness that sets the stage for all the book of Judges, the pattern of sinfulness that they fall into again and again and again. We're going to talk about the faithfulness of God right, what he does about that pattern of, of sinfulness, and then finally, the victory of grace, because that is the key that unlocks everything, the victory of grace. So let's begin by looking at the pattern of sinfulness. And if you go to verse 7, you'll see that in the first judge, Othniel, the ideal judge, we see the beginning of that pattern that's going to be repeated with each one of the judges in verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, right? The, ba the Asheroth being female fertility god. So think about all the stuff that goes with that in the ancient world, a bunch of nonsense that God was obviously not approving of. And so the first part of this pattern is this toxic unfaithfulness that they're living in. And, and, and Mark has talked about um, this tension that exists between the space where we know the truth of God and we know the person of God and we know how glorious and wonderful he is and all the things that he's done. We know what he's calling us to and we're not doing it. And so there's this tension that exists between those two worlds because we have one foot planted with God and one foot planted in the world where we refuse to act by faith. And it's not that they didn't have models of faith, right? We saw Moses as a model of faith, Joshua as a model of faith, and the heroes of all that time, Caleb was a model of faith, exactly. We'll hear from one of his descendants in a moment. All those were models of faith, and this, this tension exists that flows out of the, the unanswered call to obedience that God had given them. God called them, you are going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to live by faith, and as you live by faith, I'm going to bless you. And this land will be yours, not that you're going to take it, I'm going to take it through you, and that was the call to faith. But we know that Israel failed, failed to do that, turned their back on God's calling. Last week we saw in chapter 2, in verse 1 and 2, where God says, I will never break my covenant with you, and, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down the altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so I'm not going to drive them out anymore because you have failed to obey my voice. You are living faithlessly. You, you want me, the giver of the gifts, but re you refuse to live in faith. And so what happens when that is our environment? And, and what, the reason that the book of Judges is so seminal for us in this place in this time, because we are living the book of Judges in our time. This is what we're living and so there's a profound faithlessness by the people of God by refusing to live in the commission that God has given them. And that results in this purposeful forgetfulness that we see. 
in, in verse 12, they forgot the Lord their God. I mean, that, 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 that kind of forgetting isn't just an intellectual forgetting. It's not just, you know, uh, yeah, you know, Egypt, there was something about our ancestors. They didn't forget where they came from. They didn't forget their history. They didn't forget what the Lord had done. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about a, a purposeful turning back on. It's a purposeful forgetting. It's a putting God out of their minds and out of their lives because they know that they're not living faithfully, and they refuse to live faithfully. And so they've put God out of their mind because there's this tension. And what happens when we face tension? I mean, we're all natural tension avoiders. If, if, if you've ever owed money to anybody... You know that this is true, right? You borrow some money from a friend, and there is coming, oh, my goodness, i got to duck out this way because I know I owe that. Why? We avoid tension. We can't live in tension. It's too much stress. And so how does Israel resolve this tension is to put God out of their hearts, to put God out of their minds, to turn their back on him and purposefully forget him and embrace something else. Right, so this is the pattern, not just an intellectual forgetfulness, but a deep, emotional, identity-based forgetfulness. Right, it's the same idea as when, when, when the Bible tells us that God remembers something. Right? God never forgets things. He remembers things always. But it's that he it calls it to his attention. And this is the same idea here. It's called out of their attention, this purposeful forgetting and because, and because of that purposeful forgetting, it opens the door to all sorts of different nonsense and difficulties and problems in life. Because if we won't have the Lord God, the true God, as our God, then anything else will stand in that place. I mean, you guys uh, live in this world like I do, and so you know what the mantra of our culture is, follow your heart. You hear it three times a day. I think that, that Felipe talked about it last week. Follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. I don't know about your heart, but my heart is a disaster. And if I were to follow my heart and so follow God's word, it, my life would be a disaster because it wants one thing one day, another thing another day, and every time a new pretty Tesla comes out, it wants that thing too, or the new stereo, or the new house, or the new boat, or the new career, or the new whatever. That's how our hearts are. And when we are distant from him and forgetful of him and his ways, anything steps into that void. And so what follows is idolatry because we take these things and make them ultimate things, make them the things for which we live. And that's exactly what Israel was doing, turning their back on God, turning back on the ways of God, intermarrying with the Canaanites and others and adopting their gods. Why? Because their gods are fake gods and their gods are easy to control. What do I do? Why? Get to have some sex under a tree in the woods with somebody I don't know, temple prostitutes, and I bring a sacrifice every now and then and do whatever I want. No requirements, you know, no, 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 no God judging me, no, 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 no big, big God in the sky that I need to be afraid of, no big mission that's going to require more than I'm able to control, right? None of those things. And so they went down that path, and that path is the path of slavery because sin always leads to slavery, faithlessness always leads to slavery. When we turn our back on God, thinking that we will be free, what we're actually doing is walking into chains. I, I think I can say that as 100% truth all the times. Whatever sin you're toying with, it will be your enslaver. 
whether that sin is pornography, whether that sin is gluttony, whether that sin is, I mean, you pick, pick a sin. Pick your favorite. Your favorite is different than your favorite is different than your favorite. It will lead you into slavery 100% of the time. Not only spiritual slavery, but physical slavery. Because all of these, all of sin ends up, begins in one realm and migrates to the other one 100% of the time. So what sin are you toying with as you come to church today to, I don't know, ease your conscience? Do your bit, put one foot, you know, I know I got one foot in there. I got one foot in there. Let me keep that in there. What sin are you toying with? Or how are you avoiding God? God's calling you, hey, deal with this in your life. Why? Because it'll kill you. Because I love you. Because you're my child. And I don't want this in your life. I don't want this for you. What I want for you, I want blessedness for you. I want fullness for you. I want you to delight in me as I delight in you. And yet we put them out, put them out. Why? Because there's this thing, whatever that thing is in you, and you're clinging to it desperately because you know it's not from him. Whatever your thing is, my friends, it will eat you alive. It will win, and you will lose. So stop fooling around with it, which is exactly the lesson that Israel needs to learn again and again and again, isn't it? I mean, they learn it here through, through two different judges. They learn, they learn of the faithfulness of God. And look how faithful God is, right? Although, although they completely act sinfully against God, we read in verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, why, why does God anger against sinfulness? Well, he's angry because he knows that the sinfulness will destroy them. He knows that the sinfulness will keep them from being the blessedness of the world, for all the world and all the tribes of all the earth to look upon them and see him and come to him and find him. He's angry with them because he knows that it doesn't have to be, and yet they're walking down a road that's going to kill them. And so he angers. He angers because he loves. He sells them. God sells them into slavery. That's discipline. Right? God sells them into slavery of, of this funny-named king. I'm glad, I'm glad Mark has pronounced it, right? Kushan Rishathayim, which means Kushan the doubly wicked uh, is what that means. Now, that's not the name his mom probably gave him, right? You know, you don't pick yeah, Kushan the doubly wicked. Yeah, that's what I want him to be called. No, Kushan the doubly wicked is probably what the Israelites called him. And he was a king of Mesopotamia, and he ruled over them for eight years. And then finally... You know, the, the people turn away from, from their sin, turn to God and cry out in repentance, Lord, save us. Save us from this doubly wicked king. And God says, well, you know, I told you that I was going to be your king and that you were going to be my people, but you wouldn't have me as a king. And so I gave you what you wanted, another king. I told you that I was going to bless you, that I was going to pour out my blessings upon you if you walked with me, but you didn't want my blessings, so I gave my blessings to somebody else. What is it that you want, Israel? Do you want me or not? And through his discipline and through his anger, he's calling them back to himself. Why? Because he loves them, and he wants what's best for them. And so who is it that, that acts here? It's not Israel. It's God. The Lord raised up a deliverer. 
God raises up a deliverer. It's because of his goodness, because of his grace, because of his mercy. It's because of his character. He is the covenant keeper even when Israel is not. Israel, you fail to keep the covenant. God says, I will keep the covenant. I'm going to raise up a deliverer for you. And he raised them up. And, and, and remember that this is the ideal. So we have a great judge, right? We have a descendant of Caleb. And remember who Caleb was, right? Caleb was, he, the, Caleb was the guy who went with the 11 spies into the promised land. And he said, no, 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 no. We need to complete this mission. And Caleb is the guy who, who wandered with Joshua, with Moses, and wandered with Joshua and conquered lands. And when he was an old man, he told Joshua, I have strength in my bones and I'm not finished conquering yet. <laughs> That's Caleb. Uh, Caleb was an amazing general and an amazing conqueror and a deliverer of his people. And so the, the first judge is his descendant a great judge. And you look at him and you say, wow, that's the lineage I want. That guy right there, Caleb's descendant. He is the one who can lead our people, and he does. And that's why this is called the ideal, right? Not so much with the next guy. And so he, he kills this king and conquers the, the, the forces that had, been, that, that had been subjecting Israel to, to despotism, and he frees the land, and they're in rest for 40 years. But what do, I, what, what, what do they do in that rest? Do they, do they say, well, you know, uh, Moses told us that we had to get this done to conquer the rest of the lands, not just kill this one guy that, that Caleb's descendant was raised to deal with. What about the rest of the lands? What about the rest of the peoples that are still here? Are we going to? And we hear nothing from them, nothing at all. So God forcefully and mercifully and painfully intercedes in Israel to try to get them to see, to try to get them to walk in faith, to bring them to, to, to himself, and because he wants the best for them. You know, it's, I think of it sort of like surgery, and, and, and I had my gallbladder taken out a few years ago, an unpleasant experience for me. But let me tell you, the pain of having it taken out is much better than the death of not having it taken out, right? So, going to the surgeon and subjecting myself to pain and suffering what was needed for the ultimate blessedness of enjoying life with you guys. Otherwise, I'd be gone. My, my sister told me after the surgery that one of, my, uh, one of my aunts had died from a burst gallbladder. Apparently, there's genetic issues in my family. And I think it's the same exact thing here. God brings discipline. God brings suffering sometimes. Why? Because he's trying to get our attention. I, I venture to say that very few people walk into churches because their lives are wonderful, because they have everything they want and everything they need. Rather, the reason that you're here and the reason that I'm certainly here is because there was stuff going on in my life, suffering in things that I couldn't explain, that I wasn't prepared to manage or deal with, that I had to find somebody else to deal with because it was too big for me. And I think that's exactly what's going on here that God brings suffering sometimes and discipline because he loves us. And so we read that in, in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, right, Solomon writes this. Coming up in a second. Chapter 3, there we go. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Why does the Lord discipline Israel? Because he delights in them. Why does the Lord discipline Israel? Because he loves them. Why does the Lord discipline us, you and me? Because he delights in you. He loves you. 
And just in case you think, well, Jay, that's kind of, you know, that's some Old Testament stuff right there, you know. Uh, doesn't Jesus just, you know, pour grace upon us and doesn't discipline us? Didn't he take all the discipline for us? Don't, don't, don't mix wrath and, and judgment and discipline. They're very different things. As a matter of fact, Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation in chapter 3 also says this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so if you have discipline in your life, it is because you are loved by God that you have discipline in your life, because you are loved by Jesus that you have discipline in your life, because he's seeing you go off the rails just like he was seeing them go off the rails, and he says, no, I am not going to allow you to find blessedness there because it's a lie, because it will bring you pain, because it will destroy you. This, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me, I will become intimate with him. So when his discipline comes, open your heart to me, and I will intimately walk with you. What is the desire of God for mankind? It's for us to walk with him the way we walked in the garden. It's for us to be restored in that relationship with him. It's for us to be intimate with our Father. And yet we stay away, and we stay away because we prefer these lesser gods, these lesser things. God judges because he loves us. And that, that, that's all over the Bible, right? That, that God judges because he loves. In, 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 and that is a requirement of love. If, if, if you don't love, then you don't care enough to judge. You don't care enough to set boundaries. You don't care enough to intercede. Like the way that God's interceding here through his judges, right? It's because he loves that he disciplines he will not leave us alone. He won't give us what we want often because we want things that are not good. But he'll give us what we need. And what we need is him and, and his discipline and his love as a deliverer. Jesus judges. God judges because he loves. And that's what we should expect. It's all over the Bible, right? And so this sermon's titled, Expect the Unexpected. So what is what we shouldn't maybe expect? What is surprising? What is shocking? What's shocking is not Othniel, right? He's the ideal. What's shocking is this next guy, Ehud. He's absolutely shocking to our senses. Now, the people of Israel, again, are in the same pattern of sin, and God raises up Eglon, right, the king of Moab. Now, okay, so got to make... Two references mandatory. One is a Lord of the Rings reference and one is a Star Wars reference. So if you're a Lord of the Rings geek like me, think of the king of the goblins under the misty mountains, right? That guy is Eglon, the big, huge, fat goblin king under the misty mountains from The Hobbit. That's what Eglon is like in my, in my mind. Or if you are a, a, a Star Wars fan, Jabba the Hutt, all right? Think Jabba the Hutt is Eglon. Right, so th that's what Eglon is like. And he is, and the Lord has again raised him up to discipline Israel, to drive Israel away from their false gods back to his heart because that's what's good for them and that's what's necessary for the world. And we're told in verse 13, get this, this is interesting. He gathered to himself, uh, this, uh, the king of uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel, taking the city of Palms. Now, why is that significant, Jay? Why are you taking time with that? And the reason is this, because those are precisely the tribes that had been conquered by Joshua. 
to give the promised land to Israel. So here we see that Israel has turned their back on the promise. It's almost like the promise is being undone. And the city of Palms is Jericho, the first great city to be conquered in the promised land, and it's being undone. And so, so the idea is, Israel, if you won't have victory over the Amalekites, you won't have it. You don't want it. If you don't want victory over, over, over the Amorites, who Joshua conquered for you, if you don't want the city of Palms, I'll give it to somebody who does. I'll give it to this big, fat, humongous Jabba the Hutt guy. And the people of Israel are subjected again, and, and eventually, you know, uh, they're as dense as we are, right? Eventually, it's like, oh, yeah, God, let's cry out to him. You know, you'd think six months was enough, but no, it's like a whole bunch of years, 18 years, almost an entire generation goes by. Um, I, I remember when, when my wife and I were looking for our first house in Miami. We shopped and shopped and shopped and did everything that you could do. And we, we picked a house, and the contract fell through. Picked another house, contract fell through. Picked another house, contract fell through. And then it finally dawned upon me after a year or so of this process, you know what we haven't done? We haven't prayed for a house, right? And so we got down on our knees with our children and prayed for a house. God, we're a family. We need a house. You said you're going to provide. Please provide us a house. We had a house within the month in the neighborhood where we knew we couldn't afford it, and there it was. It, it, was, it was a complete miraculous set of events. That same week. Why? You don't have because you don't ask. And so finally, 18 years later, don't be as dense as they are, right? If you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with God, turn today. That's an aside. They finally turn back to God, and God raises up this, the Benjamite, this Benjamite, Ehud, who the passage tells us in the ESV says a left-handed man. Now, it's interesting that he says it's a left-handed man because the literal translation is a little bit different, right? It's not that he was a lefty. And if any of you guys are lefties out there, it doesn't make you more or less spiritual than, than righties. That's not the idea. The idea was that he was a cripple, that his, 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 what it literally says is that his right hand was hindered. And so think of him as a man whose right hand isn't working, right? So he's left-handed out of necessity, not because of choice or not because of his DNA. His right hand is crippled. And so the right hand being that, the hand that's used for sword fighting and the rest, and him being seen as a cripple in the ancient world, he's not a threatening guy whatsoever. So, so whereas... In the prior story, of the, 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 the first judge, we see the strength of the judge. What comes out here, right, in contrast to that, is the weakness of the judge. And so the, the Israelites send him, uh, send Ehud along to deliver the, the, the annual taxes to the king of Moab, right? He conquered them. He was their king. They had to pay tribute every year. Interestingly, the word that's used in this passage for tribute is a tribute due to God, Right? So instead of giving God his tribute because they refused to give God his tribute, who do they give it to? Somebody else. Because you're going to have a king. You're going to have something that you worship. Ask Bob Dylan. He wrote about that. You're going to worship something. And so, so Ehud comes along with a contingent from Israel to deliver the annual taxes, and he's welcomed into, got all the soldiers in the room, and they bring in the, the, the payment and whatever that was. And then 
they all leave, and Ehud turns back and, and tells uh, the king, I have a message for you from God. Notice that the message isn't from Ehud, and the message isn't from Israel. Again, it's God. So God had given Ehud a message, this cripple, and God had told him, this is what you're going to do. You're going to bring judgment against the king of Moab on my behalf. And he straps uh, an 18-inch knife to his right thigh, right? And the, the, presumptively, the guards of the king look at him and say, well, pfft, he's a cripple. What can he do? You know, this big, huge king of ours can kick him with one leg and the guy go flying across the room. Right? He's, not, he's not in any danger. And so he goes into a private audience with a king, and what does he do? He takes that blade and shoves it into the fat of uh, the king of Moab. Now, don't think of him as an assassin because he's not an assassin. Think of him as a judge because he's carrying out the will of God by the word of God. That's what he's doing. He's bringing justice upon Moab because Moab had assaulted the people of God. And God is jealous and loves his people and will defend them. And so God raises up this crippled man and defends his people through him. And, and again, we see in that the sovereignty of God in his grace. You know, if, if, if this would have been, if every judge would have been like Caleb's successor, we would say, well, God only uses strong people. And God, God can't use me because I'm a spiritual cripple, Jay. And you know what? God can use you because it's not primarily you. If your eyes are on you and your spiritual deficiencies and your physical deficiencies or whatever deficiencies you have in your life, your eyes are in the wrong place. And you're never going to be enough. And you're never going to reach the place where, where God is pouring his spirit through you. Take your eyes off of yourself. That's what Ehud was able to do, take his eyes off of himself and put his eyes upon God. And God says, yes, I want you, the crippled guy, to go in there and fight this humongous king and kill him and then come back and call the people of Israel. So in his sovereignty, God raises him up. God empowers him. God creates the circumstances and delivers his message through Ehud. And we could end there and talk about how wonderful the sovereignty of God is. We could, we could talk about the, the, the majesty of this grace through Ehud because, you know, because you know, each, of these, each of these judges points to the ultimate deliverer, right? Each of these deliverers points to the ultimate deliverer. It points to the deliverer that we have in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Othniel. Jesus is the, the, the ultimate Ehud. And like Ehud... Jesus was what? Despised and unappealing. You read that in Isaiah. He wasn't the person that people looked to. You know, what, what would Israel have thought of Ehud? God's curse must be upon you because you have a physical deformity. How could God ever use you as a warrior? How could you lead the people of Israel? And God is saying, grace, 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 grace. Grace is more powerful than power. Grace is the most powerful power of all the universe. And it's through that grace that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And he sovereignly acts through him. And then, then Ehud, after, after, after um, bringing God's judgment upon the king of Moab, goes out and blows a trumpet and calls the people of Israel. And they follow and they answer. And so something that I see everywhere in Scripture is this. 
God's sovereign call is always accompanied by man's call to responsibility. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, grace is completely by him. Yes, he will manage and orchestrate the events of the world to highlight his glory and to, and to highlight the glory of his son, our Lord Jesus, the great deliverer. But we are always called to responsibly respond to his grace. And so what do we see here? Ehud finishes the task of delivering Israel from this king. The king is dead. And he blows a horn and calls them down out of the mountains. And the part of the passage that we didn't read from, from verse 26 forward is that Israel answers the call and follows him, and they do battle against the armies of Moab. They take a, a, a strategic position on the, on, on, on the Jordan River, and, it, and we're told that the Lord gives them into his hands. So God sovereignly acting through the responsible actions of his people. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. If you deny either one of those, you end up with crazy heresies and with a crazy life. Both of those have to be kept together at all times. So, we, so, so in man's responsibility, they faithfully obey the call of God's anointed. Why does it matter? It matters because we are like Israel. Because we have a commission. They had a commission. Take the promised land. We have a commission. Take the promised land. Take the kingdom. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28? As you go through the world, make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. That's your commission if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's your commission. Now, because we're good Presbyterians, we know this. God accomplishes his commission. God will do it. You don't bring anybody to faith. That's the Spirit's work. You don't bring a single person to faith. That's God's work. But how does he do it? Because he is sovereign, he does it through means. And those means are you and me. Those means are your faithfulness to the commission which he's laid before you and my faithfulness to the commission which he's laid before me. Are we faithful? Or are we in the same kind of toxic environment that Israel was in with a commission? Are we forgetting God? Do we put him out of our minds Monday through Saturday and say, oh, Sunday. Yep, I remember that Jesus guy. Let's go to church. And Monday through Friday and Monday through Saturday looks very different. Do we have any less idols than Israel does? I mean, we live in the most capitalist, rich society on earth. To think that we don't have problems with idolatry is nonsense. We, we are the biggest consumers of pornography in the history of mankind. We are the biggest consumers of money and food and liquor in the history of mankind. We have the nicest houses and the biggest cars. We're in the top 1% of the top 1% of all the people throughout all of history. To think that we don't have problems with idols, that's just, that's just nonsense. And the question is, what do we do? How? I mean, because I know that you guys don't want to end up with the king of Moab over you. Some of you may think that he already is. That's a different discussion. So what do we do? In order to overcome, we have to be overcome. 
right? We have to be overcome by the better Othniel. We have to be overcome by the better Ehud. We have to surrender our desires and plans and goals for our lives and take up his in faith. Walk with him. We have to, you know, he is sounding the trumpet. He sounded it on the day of resurrection. He is sounding it still. He sounded it on the day of Pentecost. He is sounding it still. He is sounding it right now. And he is saying, cry out. Cry out to me. Embrace me. Walk with me. Talk with me. Pick up your sword. The word of the Spirit. Pick up your sword and take the dagger the word of God, and plunge it into the king of Moab. Whatever that Moab is in your life, plunge it in and join me in the battle. That's what he's calling you to, and that's what he wants you to. He wants you to follow the risen one because he delivers the repentant, but for a purpose. He delivers the repentant that they might join him in the battle. He delivers the repentant that they might live in faith as they complete the commission that he's called them to. And if you're living without the kind of experiential ecstasy of God in your life, I can tell you without hesitation it's because you're not in the battle. Because you're watching the battle from the sidelines the way Israel was watching the battle from the sidelines. And he wants more for you and he has more for you. He's saying, come on in. Rally to the banner of Christ. Rally to the banner of the resurrection and watch what I'll do in your life. I will turn your life from a little song into an orchestra. You think that you're crippled? It's not in your strength, my friend. It's in his and so what are you waiting for? I mean, if Israel in their apostasy could cry out, isn't the same for us even more so on this side of the cross, seeing him conquer already in grace and victory, looking to the resurrection, cry out to him and watch what he does in your life. Amen? Amen. Amen.